Please have your Bible open at Matthew chapter 12. This morning we are going to look at Matthew chapter 12 from verse 38 to 45. And uh, we are going to see Jesus' response to the scribes and Pharisees for their legal request of a sign. It is a passage that clearly demonstrates that nothing can satisfy religious hypocrites and proud people who will reject even the obvious truth. The passage is part of the conflict which form chapter 12. The events in chapter 12 and chapter 13 take place in a single day. And in chapter 12, the rejection of Christ reaches a new height, or like a climax in the, in the Gospel of Matthew so far. The chapter contains three conflicts. And uh, the first one is the conflict over the Sabbath, which we heard of two weeks ago first 20 verses, and then the conflict over Satan. And today we'll take a look at the conflict over signs. Tension has been rising between Jesus and the Jewish leaders for some time because Jesus would not compromise the word of God and follow their traditions. They were especially upset on Jesus because he broke their Sabbath rules and he was healing people on the Sabbath day. We saw in verse 14 in chapter 12 that the Pharisees began to plot to, mur to murder Jesus. And this self-righteousness man committed the one sin that could not be forgiven when they blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. We saw that the man was blind and mute due to a demon possession and he was brought to Jesus. Jesus cast out the demon and uh, healed the man. Immediately the people began to openly wonder if Jesus was the son of David, a title for the promised Messiah. The scribes and the Pharisees started to speak against uh, Jesus, telling people that uh, he cast out demons with the power of the demons. Jesus, knowing their uh, thoughts and comments, called them into an account and uh, showed them that their accusations were illogical and even inconsistent with their own practice. Jesus also bluntly told them that every other sin could be forgiven to them except the one they had just done. They claimed that Jesus' actions were empowered by Satan, yet the fruit of Jesus' life powerfully demonstrated that he was indeed from God, just as he said. They claim about themselves to be good, but the fruits of their lives prove just the opposite. And we saw last Sunday in verses 36 and 37 that Jesus warned them that they would give an account to God for everything they did, and their own words would testify against them and prove that their hearts were evil. And in verse 38, our portion of scripture today, we read, 
Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered them, answer him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Have you ever seen a debate in which the person whose arguments have been truly demolished tries to rescue himself, ignoring what was said and then requesting more proof of what has just been proven? That's exactly what happened here. The scribes and the Pharisees held a position in that society as the experts in their religion and in the law. They used that position to regain a sense of superiority and put themselves in a position in which they tried to judge Jesus. But their reaction and their attitude was insinuating that the law was teaching what they were claiming, regardless of whatever it was actually in the scripture. Their request to Jesus showed them some sort of sign suggested to the crowd that the Messiah would provide a sign and they, the scribes and the Pharisees, will be the ones who declare that the sign is valid or invalid. After the warning, rebuke and condemnation that Jesus just pronounced, it is amazing that they remain calm enough to respond with basic politeness. They call Jesus teacher. And uh, this betrays their hypocrisy because they were trying to come off very pious, to look as very, very pious servants of God. And in their hypocrisy, they acknowledge Jesus as master, as a teacher, and as a rabbi. This was a, a title of great respect in those days. One who knew the law, one who could teach the law, and one who was an authority in the law. But deep in their hearts, they had no respect for him at all. They despise him. Their request may have been made politely, but actually it was a demand. They wanted a sign, a miracle of some type, that would prove he was from God. And uh, immediately we wonder what other miracle could they have possibly wanted? The Jesus had just cast out a demon and healed a man who was both blind and mute. Jesus had openly been healing every disease and sickness, sometimes using only a word. Jesus had demonstrated his power over nature, including stilling the wind and the waves with a simple command. He shown his authority over the spiritual realm by casting out demons. What more 
could they possibly want? We are not told exactly what they wanted, but probably, reading the parallel passages from the scripture and uh, Matthew chapter 16, probably they want something big, something spectacular on a cosmic level scale. And Jesus answered them. Jesus offered them an answer. And we, we can see his response in verse 39 and 40. Jesus answered their request, but he answered them and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation crave for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So first part of Jesus' answer is the sign of Jonah. Jesus rebuked them again. He calls them wicked and adulterous people and firmly declines their demand. God does not perform miracles for the pleasure of those who are wicked in their hearts. What more could Jesus do anyway? Even writing his name on the sky with golden letters or something similar would not have turned their blind eyes and hardened hearts into eyes that could see God and hearts that could believe in Jesus. Those men had already demonstrated their blindness to the miracles provided by Jesus. Nothing would satisfy them. There are no miracles that could satisfy an unbelieving heart. And I'm sure all of us, we had different conversations with different people, and they always ask for more, for more, for more. It's not about more proof, more arguments. It's about the heart. There are no miracles that could satisfy an unbelieving heart. And Jesus expands, this time, his condemnation from the scribes and the Pharisees to the whole generation of Jewish people that were following them in their wickedness. They were considered adulterers because they were supposed to be in a covenant relationship with God and they had turned their back on him to pursue their own system of religion. Previous generations of the children of Israel had been declared adulterers because of their worship of the false Canaanites God. You remember that. And they ended up in exile. The present generation replaced the Canaanite God with a religion. Instead of following God, they placed their hope and trust in the idol of man-made religious tradition. The previous generations, they were worshipping Canaanites gods. The Lord did what he promised them to do in the law. They were in exile. When they came back, they never worshipped any other idols from the surrounding people and countries. But now, they put their trust 
in the idol of man-made religious tradition. They are living evidence that religion without the heart for God becomes an idol. They are a living evidence that the religion without a heart for God, transformed by God, becomes an idol. And they were de declined the spectacular sign that they were seeking, but God made sure they would not be left without a sign. The sign of Jonah, the prophet. The sign that God prepared for them would be a sign that would go beyond their imagination. Jesus' death and resurrection would be the only sign and the most powerful one. And we do not need another sign. That's enough in order to believe in God. Jonah was a prophet of Israel who was appointed by God to go to Nineveh and warn them about God's coming judgment if they did not repent. We know Jonah refused to obey God's uh, command and instead of going to Nineveh, he went the opposite direction towards Tarshish. He gets embarked on a ship while sailing, God caused a frightening storm and uh, Jonah was thrown overboard. God sent a big fish to swallow Jonah alive. Jonah spent three, time, three days and three nights in the belly of this fish, in the repentance before God. We read about that in Jonah chapter 2 at the beginning of our service. Until the appointed time when God commanded the fish to throw Jonah out. Jonah then goes to Nineveh and completes what God told him to do in the first place. Now Jonah is, the sign of Jonah is what is called like a, a, a typical prophecy. The experience that Jonah went through is a type of what Jesus would go through. As Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, then was spit out, so the Son of Man, Jesus the Messiah, would be buried three days and nights and then risen again. This was a prediction of Jesus' coming death and resurrection. That, or that would be the sign Jesus would give. Would they look for it? And he did? No. Let me quickly point two other things about what Jesus says here about the sign of Jonah. First, Jesus believed the story of Jonah. If you, don't, if you have a problem, problem believing the story of, of Jonah is true, then you have a problem with Jesus because he attested that it was true. So you're not going to argue with me or with other Christians. You argue against God and Jesus. For him it was clear, he attested, it is. That's it. Secondly, some people use this passage 
to claim that Jesus could not have been crucified on Friday afternoon and raised on Sunday morning. That would, be, would not be 72 hours, but only two nights, you know, all the discussion. How this conflict can be solved? Some, try, some people try to resolve it by moving Jesus' death back on Thursday, but the scriptures tell us that the death occurred on Friday, the day before the Sabbath, and the resurrection took place on Sunday, the first day of the week. And the answer comes in understanding the Jewish idiom of day and night. In the same manner in which they would use heaven and earth to mean the same as we mean by term universe, they would use day and night in the same manner as we use day to speak of one diurnal time unit. The nights would always be numbered with the days any part of the day would be counted as a whole day. Church away day in Bala, a week yesterday, half ten to half six in the evening. Why are we calling a day out? It's just eight hours one-third of the 24 hours, you see? But we call it day out, weekend away, three days, Friday evening, Saturday, and Sunday. The Jewish day began, and I'm gonna end with this, began with nightfall. Three days and nights are crucified on Friday, part of the day counted as a whole, beginning the previous nightfall, Thursday evening, it's counting, so night one, day one. Saturday in the grave, night two, day two. Sunday morning, rise from the dead, night three and day three. But let's come back to our uh, main theme. Jesus' own resurrection from the dead would be the sign given to them, but they would reject that sign and it would stand up as judgment against them. Jesus now explains how certain their judgment will be because of the hardness of their heart when it comes to see and to respond to what they already seen. And Jesus continued his answer and it's telling them about the judgment. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The judgment from the Ninevites. The nation of Nineveh will judge the generation of unbelieving Jews because they repented at what little God gave to Nineveh comparing to the great amount God gave them. Yet, they remain hardened towards God. Nineveh received its message from God through Jonah, who was a minor prophet with a sinful and rebellious heart. You remember, God commanded him to go. 
He went in the opposite direction. He was saved. He preached, but even then, he was not really pleased. This generation received the message from Jesus Christ, who was God in human flesh and without sin. The message to Nineveh was a message of doom. All Jonah said to them was, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was it. All his message. 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jesus presented the message of grace, mercy, and it was full of salvation. Just remember the, the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount. Jonah didn't do miracles or other signs. Jesus came doing many miracles and signs. You know, sometimes we are wondering if we would be able to do this and that and that and that. No. Jesus was in their midst. Jonah was speaking to people completely unfamiliar with the revelation of God in the scriptures. Jesus was speaking to people well-versed in the scriptures and have, having a godly heritage. That generation rejected God, his message, and his son. And uh, one of the Bible commentators <coughs> put it this way, William Hendrickson, less enlightened people obeyed less enlightened preaching. But more enlightened people refused to obey the light of the world. The people from Nineveh had less than that generation and they repented. But the Ninevites would not be the only ones that would condemn that generation of Jews. The Queen of the South would too. And Graham just mentioned about it. And uh, one famous preacher put it that way, in the judgment day, the prosecution have at least two witnesses, the Ninevites and the Queen of the South. The judgment from the Queen of the South. The Queen of the South shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. She, the queen of the south, queen of Sheba, like the Ninevites, responded to little information compared to the abundant evidence Jews had. Her country was on a Mediterranean to India trade route, and because of that she was very wealthy, and she heard some reports of the fame of King Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, because this is what it says in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1. Now, when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She had no invitation, 
but she wanted to hear his wisdom. So she made the long journey, roughly 1,200 miles, carrying gold, jewels, spices, expensive gifts for Solomon. And can you see what a contrast she is to the Israelites of that generation? Who did not have to make a long and difficult journey to hear the wisdom of God. For Jesus, the very wisdom of God was in their midst. The Queen of the South had only heard reports while they had seen and heard Jesus themselves. She came bearing gifts to Solomon, but they, give, they gave nothing to Jesus. Instead, they plotted to take away his life. There is no report that she had an invitation to come, but she came and rejoiced in Solomon's wisdom and praised the Lord for it. You can read about that in, in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 9. This generation has been invited and urged to come to Jesus and follow his wisdom, but they refuse, which is why Jesus pronounced woes upon those cities in Matthew chapter 11. The Queen of the South will stand in judgment upon them because she did all that to hear Solomon, while they refused Jesus, who was greater in every respect. What a tragedy they were. But Jesus continued with his answer. And in verse 43, he says, Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Some people think that this paragraph, it's, it's a different section, but actually the last sentence is linked to the verse 39. So Jesus is speaking to this generation. Jesus compares this generation with a demonized man who had been freed from the demon. And in this parable, Jesus vividly and frightening, frighteningly pictures the consequences of religious and moral reformation apart from a right relationship with him. You remember what I said? The previous generations, they were sent in exile because they worship Canaanites God. They came back. They repented. That sin was not present anymore in Israel. But now they have a different religion, man-made religion. They had, it was some reformation in their midst. 
John the Baptist preached probably a few months earlier. So it was some reformation over there. But the main, the text is talking about an unclean spirit whose specific evil characteristics are not identified. We don't know exactly. We are not told why the demon left the man. It may be that the man made a moral decision to forsake the sin and demon lost control over man's mind and, and, and heart. The man was temporarily freed from the demon's, demon's presence and influence. Demon uh, passed and uh, was looking to find some rest in different places, was unable to find it. And uh, Demon decided to go back to his former residence. It says, I will return to my house from which I came which indicates a strong sense of ownership, isn't it? He was able to return and had free access because the house was unoccupied, swept and put in order. The fact that the house was empty, swept and put in order, suggest that a genuine moral reformation had taken place. This can be triggered by social circumstances, imprisonment, disease, social stigma, financial ruin, love, from, love for a husband or a wife or children or family, anything like that. In the case of Israelites, it was the exile. But these can be powerful motivations but such self-cleaning, no matter how true and extensive is, is never permanent if it's not accompanied by saving faith in God. When the basic sinful nature is not dealt with through the miracle of repentance and trust in Christ, the removal of a particular sin leaves that personal spiritual house unoccupied, ready to be taken over by many more evil spirits, causing the person to become worse than before. That's why Paul prayed to the Ephesian that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Our house, our spiritual house, must be filled with God, with Christ, with the Holy Spirit. Where Christ do not live, demons are free to live. And people need inner transformation, not outward reformation. I think that's the message of these three verses. People need inner transformation and not outward reformation. And let's come to our days. And there is a picture of our society. This post-Christian era is followed by a surge, of surge in spirituality. People feel betrayed by the god of materialism and have, start, have started searching for 
something else to fulfill the emptiness that's inside them. Suddenly, people want to discover that side of their being which has been neglected in the past because they realize that material things does not fulfill us. They don't give us any satisfaction. Suddenly, morality and ethics become a priority. And I'm not saying they're not important. But sometimes a lot of churches, a lot of people fall in this trap, fighting for morality. Well, Christians should be first to promote morality in society. That's, we are absolutely clear here. But morality by itself, without a right relationship with God, is in many ways more dangerous than immorality. Morality by itself doesn't save anyone. Morality by itself without the right relationship with God could be more dangerous than immorality. To preach morality, but not salvation to Christ, promotes a religion that drives people further from God. It is much easier to reach someone who is overwhelmed with the true sense of sin than someone who is overwhelmed with the false sense of righteousness. Isn't that your experience? These Pharisees were the classic moralists. No other Jews, not to mention about the Gentiles, were committed to such rigid standards of religion, morality, ethics, and daily living. Nobody was better than them. But they were so self-righteousness and self-sufficient that when God himself came to them in human form, they rejected and crucified them, him. They were so convinced and absorbed by their self-righteousness that they saw no need for a savior. And when the righteous one stood in their midst, they accused him that he is with the devil with Satan. Jesus preached deliverance from sin, but they were not interested because they could not imagine such a message having any relevance to them. Jesus had little trouble reaching the thieves, the prostitutes, the murderers, the outcasts of society. But he had an almost impossible time reaching the moral people. As long as the people don't see their sin, they see no need for salvation. If they are good, why should they be saved? And Jesus warned the people not to listen or to follow the example of their moralistic but ungodly religious leaders, but to come to him. Because, again, if it's just an outward reformation, the house is empty. Yeah, there is a reformation, nobody is denying. But the house is empty. 
and uh, instead of one guest, you will have eight guests. Unwelcome. People need inner transformation and not morality. We need to preach salvation in Christ only. And finally, you might say, so what does this have to do with me in Liverpool in 2022? You might say this portion of scripture refers to that specific generation of the Jews in Israel. We are a different generation, in a different place, different culture, everything is different. This is true, I'm not saying no. But the human heart is the same. The human heart is the same. It was then, it's now, the same. And uh, in this text, I think there are two principles that serve as a strong warning to us today. This is a warning message. It's, this is what Jesus was saying. It's not a very positive message. It is in a way, but it's full of warnings. God gives revelation of himself to men. That's the first one. To some people, God gives much revelation of himself. To some people, less. It's up to him, it's not up to us. But each of us, even though we got much or less, each of us must be careful not to ignore or disregard or disconsider the revelation received. The Queen of the South, she heard second-hand histories about Solomon and Lord. The Ninevites, a message of one sentence. They had less, but they repented and then praised God. So, even if we have a lot or less, we have to be careful not to ignore God. And I'm going to be very personal now. Some of you have not yet acknowledged your sin before God. You still believe that you are good enough trying to live a, a moral life through your own power, using your own means and methods. You refuse to see your sinful nature and the need for a savior. Lord Jesus told us in this passage that there is going to be a judgment day. And at least the Ninevites and the Queen of the South will judge all those who didn't put their trust and faith and didn't come to repentance in front of God. So I beg you this morning, seriously consider your stand before God. Today, now. That judgment day will be 
when either probably most of us will be dead or when Christ will come back. The thing is, we can solve our problem with God today, not tomorrow. My grandma died when she was 86, my mom was 83, I had a cousin who was 11. And I, I know some other people who died in their 20s, 30s, 40s. Do you know when you're going to die? You don't. It's certain that we are going to die. So I'm going to be very blunt now, I'm sorry. What if tomorrow is not going to be your day? Think about it. Do you trust your own righteousness or Christ? What is stopping you from putting your faith and trust in Jesus? Is it confusion? Is there something you do not understand? There are plenty of resources available. Search and you will find. Is it pride? Are you falling, failing to see your sinfulness and your need for Christ? Do you still believe that you are good enough on your own? Well, in that case, you need to humble yourself as the scriptures command. A proud heart will receive the judgment of the righteous God. Or maybe you are one of those, like those in our text today, you're one of those who are looking for Jesus to do some extra signs for you, and then maybe you will decide to believe. If so, Today's message was a warning towards you, and I want to inform you again that Jesus do not have to do anything else to prove himself to you or to anyone else. Nineveh repented of the hopeless preaching of Jonah. Queen of the South sought Solomon based on the second-hand stories. God's written word it's here. You have been given that word of God, which is here. I think everyone has this. You have access to solid Bible teachings here or in other places. You are surrounded by people who can testify what Christ has done for their lives. You also live after Jesus has fulfilled the sign of Jonah, his death and resurrection. So if you continue to neglect what has been given to you, then you'll be like, like the Pharisees and the scribes, and you will stand under the judgment of God. I'm here to tell you, finally, 
that Jesus have to do, does not have to do anything else to prove himself and his love for you. He proved everything. His promises were true and are true. He rose from the dead. Also, I think there is a warning for the Christians too. We are saved from our sins to serve and worship God. Are we half-hearted? Or are we devoted to Him, to serve Him? Or maybe we expect to Him to make us happy, healthy, wealthy, to remove all our struggles. And then, hmm, yeah, then when I'll have everything, I will serve Him. No. There's a challenging for us as Christians too. It's time to get past the foolishness of wanting something from God before you will believe or we will decide to serve Him with our hearts. So the first principle is that God has already given each person all the revelation of Himself that is necessary for any person to seek, believe and serve Him. The second one is that outward reformation is not enough. Cleaning up the outside accomplishes nothing. If the inside is not clean and then filled with Christ. You cannot fool people. You can fool people, but you cannot fool God. Because He knows our hearts. Change must come through the regeneration that comes by the Holy Spirit who changed our hearts to desire God's glory instead of our own. Not a reformation. The Holy Spirit changed our hearts and our desires. We must and you must humble to believe and follow Christ. Salvation from sin and a transformed life comes only by God's grace through faith in the person and work of, Holy, of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Bible text this morning has given us strong but necessary words that challenge and warn us, praying that God's Spirit will search our hearts, expose our sins, and bring repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Amen.